Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. First 12 verses of chapter 3 are our text. Page 1012 in the Bible provided for you. The blob was not subtle. The Blob was that scary movie that would come on TV every now and then when I was a child. I don't know how old it is, but it was my childhood version of a horror movie. I don't know that I ever watched it. I don't know that I would commend it. Uh, You do your own research. I mention movies sometimes. Sometimes I know more about them than at others. In this case, it was just a giant scary blob. And it was not subtle. It was a foreigner to this world that came here from outer space somewhere. It was, it was huge and it kept getting, getting bigger. Now the tongue is not huge. It is small. In fact, I've titled this sermon, The Tongue. And you don't think, scary movie. Uh, but maybe you should think, Scary movie. The ton is subtle. It is familiar, even right under our noses. And it is the subject of James's text this morning. Let's see if we can get a good hard look at our tongues. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. But if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And this is God's word for us today. Well, the tongue is the source of so much trouble, and yet it is graciously the target of God's saving work, even, in a way, the center of that target. This passage 
is filled with scary images. They're not all scary, but it is filled with scary images. Uh, devouring fire, beasts of various kinds. He lets us in on a secret. Let's focus on that secret for a moment. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Before we get into the scary stuff, let's get into this little secret that he shares with us. Uh, The secret to managing your whole life. How about that? You didn't read this passage and think, the secret to managing my whole life, which kind of sounds like productivity tips. Not exactly, but actually it might go a long way to being productive if you're into that. At first, this little line here in verse 2 where we're beginning sounds like an impossible bar to clear. Uh, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole life body. Uh, Thanks, James. Of course, I would love to be able to control my tongue perfectly, and if I had that ability, no doubt I could do about anything. And as if to discourage us, then he says we all stumble in many ways. So he, he gives us the bar, and he says, you can't clear it. Is this how he means to begin? Or maybe he's just talking about teachers. Great, so it's just me. Uh, The bar is set that high for teachers. After all, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. I'm sure there's a pastor somewhere who has quit upon uh, preparing a sermon on chapter 3. I didn't do that. I won't do that on you. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a greater strictness of judgment that comes with more words and more public words and consequential words and words that are intended to lead. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Is this the the kind of person we're to look for in our preachers? Well, I'll take encouragement from the first part of verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, including the preachers, including the teachers of the church. Um, Hold us to a high standard, and we should, in in a way, this is James's version of Paul's words to Timothy, qualifications for, for elders. I mean, you could boil it all down to listen to how they talk. Follow them around in their house. See how they talk about people when they're not around. That reveals a whole lot in terms of character. But I don't think that's exactly what he's doing here. I'll make a comment before the sermon is over about teachers in the church's teaching ministry. No, he's just offering here a simple principle to begin. And that simple principle is that little tongue of yours is the control center, the command center, the director of the whole course of your life. The tongue that you have in your mouth, that little member that you cannot see with your eyes, is a guide for the whole of your life. A simple principle he establishes at the head. And by whole life, at least in this little uh, header, I mean this in two ways. The whole life as in the whole thing. Um, your whole life. The whole life to follow. Your words shape and guide your, your life. There are great consequences with the words that you say. Um, it may be that in securing a job, there was one line in that interview that means you landed it, which led to one season of life and then to another and to other possibilities. It may be that One comment 
at work. One false move of the mouth and you've lost a job, uh, lost your family, um, lost a friendship. The whole course of your life can be directed by this little member in your mouth. But I also mean it in that other sense that we're using and talking uh, in the book of James. Remember how he began, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The whole Christian life, the whole of your life, a life of integrity that is complete, that is not divided in other words. So I mean by this, the whole thing, your whole life, and a life undivided amongst itself. The secret to managing your whole life is the tongue. There's this little line here. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. And he says we all stumble in many ways. Um, he begins here with a note of moral clarity. Um, it's worth saying that you can stumble in what you say. And there he doesn't just mean, you know, say something you didn't mean to. Uh, he doesn't mean uh, say something accidentally. Um, he means stumble in sin. That's the concern of the book. Um, he means saying what you meant to say that you shouldn't have said. Saying what you meant to say because you really thought it and you shouldn't have thought it. We all stumble like that in many ways. And it's important for us to say as Christians and as a church that we can sin with our mouths. Um, it's, it's not, it's not um, right that we should say whatever we're thinking. It's not right that we should say whatever we're feeling. That we're merely expressing ourselves and our individuality is not... Uh, validating of its moral goodness. It's not, words aren't good just because they came out of us, as if what's in us is always good. No, self-restraint is a virtue. Self-expression, by all a part of life, is not itself a virtue. It begins on a note of moral clarity, at least that we need, that we can stumble and sin in our words, and God is a judge. We're a judge with greater strictness. He's the one who decides the standard here, not us. We also begin on a note of humility. Not only is it true that we can stumble in many ways and can sin with our mouth, but we do. James says as much, we all stumble in many ways. And so I begin saying that to you about myself. And we should all be willing to say that to each other. And we should be willing to say that when we've actually done it. Um, it's easy to say, I'm a sinner. It's a little harder to say, I'm a sinner with my mouth. I say sinful things. It's a little bit harder after you sin with your mouth to say, that's what I'm talking about. But as Christians, of course, that's uh, a good evidence that we know the Lord is that we can say, I should not have said that. That was sinful of me. Forgive me. We begin on a note of moral clarity and on a note of humility. Okay, so having gotten that principle out of the way, and maybe the hairball in our head, not on our head, but in our head, in our minds, the, the clog that would keep us from moving on, 
we now move on to some pictures. In fact, four metaphors for our mouths. You can't see your tongue, can't even see your mouth. If you can, you've got something special going on. I can't. I can kind of see my nose when I like, cross my eyes. Tongue is not something you can see, and what you do with it, you can see, but you've got to have some imagination. Um, there are real effects from our words in real life. Well, James here is going to help us out with picture after picture after picture. I hesitated with the whole blob thing to start the sermon because it's a good rule of preaching that if the author has given you an illustration, go ahead and use that. Well, in this case, he gave me about 15, and I added one already. Well, the rest of the sermon, we're just going to borrow James's material, if that's okay with you. A bit of cheating. I've done some synthesis, though, because some of his metaphors, some of his images do the same job. So we're going to carve this up with four metaphors for our mouth. See if we can't get a look, a good look at our and in our mouth together. The first metaphor is that of a rudder of a great ship. This takes us from verses 3 through the beginning of verse 5, which teaches us that the tongue is deceitfully powerful. If we put bits into the mouths of horses, that's another one we'll get to in a moment, so that they should obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. All right, this is the one we'll settle on, though. Look at the ships. Look at the ships. Also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet... It boasts great things. So look at the ships. Uh, how do ships work? Well, in the first place, there's the body of the ship. Not a technical term, it's my term this morning. There's the thing you look at. It's the ship. If you're drawing a ship, it's the ship. And it may carry any number of people, and it may carry some cargo, and it may be of various sizes, but it goes on the water, and it floats, and if it's a good ship, it'll stand up in harsh weather, and harsh winds. Well, how is a ship driven? We're told here, ships also, they are very large, and they are driven, powered, by strong winds. So sails up above the ship, and ancient ships would catch the wind, and the wind would blow the ship. But where is the ship blown? Well, that will be determined by, among other things, you can move those sails around, by a very small rudder, guided by a very small rudder. Can't even see it as it disappears under the water, even as our tongues disappear into our mouths. Very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. You think about how ships have advanced since the time of James's writing. They are bigger and they are badder and they are better. You see sometimes a little picture comparing the size of a great cruise ship to the Titanic that had the name Titanic. And we all know what the Titanic was. And it sank, and it wasn't supposed to sink. And it was a, a modern, at the time, marvel. And yet it is dwarfed by the size of modern-day great ships. The Gerald R. Ford, for example, which is our largest and the largest in the world aircraft carrier, it is absolutely huge at 1,000 feet and 100,000 
tons. It can carry 90 aircraft and 4,500 crew. And how is that ship driven? But by two onboard nuclear reactors that power four 90-ton propellers. Uh, that's massive development in technology over so many years. Well, how is the ship guided? I googled around to see if I could get my eyes on the rudder. Maybe it doesn't have a rudder. No, sure it does. It does. I found a picture of the rudder. It looks like a rudder. It's so boring, there aren't a whole lot of them out there. No one really talks about them. And if you draw the Gerald R. Ford, you're not going to draw a rudder on it. If you asked me to draw a ship, I would forget the rudder. That technology has not changed so much. Relatively speaking, that great 1,000-foot, 100,000-ton ship is guided by the same little piece of technology that moves on a hinge at the will of the pilot. And that is what the tongue is like. Even, dare I say, more powerful. For we form words with our mind, we form words in our mouth with our tongue, and by those words that we speak with our tongue, we guide our whole life. And of course, we are talking about words and not exactly the tongue. Remember verse 2, if he does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's talking about the words that we form with our tongues. Well, the tongue is like that. A ship or horses, similarly. It's where we get horsepower from. It's the way we measure the power in an engine. Horses powered the ancient world. It's how anything got anywhere, almost. And those horses that could go wherever they wanted because of their great power could be controlled powerfully by whomever put a bridle, a bit in that horse's mouth. Ships and horses. They're guided by something small whose power and strength is way out of proportion to its size. And at this point in establishing that, James hasn't evaluated our tongues yet. That's just establishing the simple principle of the matter. The basic outsized influence of your words. The tongue. That's the first metaphor for the mouth, the rudder of a very great ship. Okay, now the next metaphor. The spark for a great fire. Second half of verse 5 through 6. You didn't miss it. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on, the, setting on fire the entire course of life and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue is a spark for a great fire. The tongue is deceitfully destructive. Not just deceitfully powerful, but deceitfully, deceptively destructive. It's discreet, but it's dangerous. And its danger is way out of proportion to its size. Well, let's ponder this matter of fire together. 
of how does a fire begin? A good number of fires begin with a simple spark, a flash of heat. How does a fire spread from one place to another? And the multiplication of heat and the multiplication of fire that creates more fire, that burns more things down, that burns still something else down. You can burn a whole field, forest down. Fires spread by fire. And once it's going, it can be very difficult to control. Now, why might a fire start? All kinds of reasons. Um, a controlled burn might be one way that a fire begins. A burn that has begun on purpose in order to control vegetation and growth in a particular part of the country, even to save people um, the danger of a fire breaking out uh, in an uncontrolled fashion later. A controlled burn is a thing. Tomfoolery is a thing. Uh, story goes that up in Gagetown, Michigan, oh, this is going public. This is on the internet. Um, it's an old family story, but it was a long time ago. Um, my dad and his friends used to shoot rats in the field around the corner from the house and uh, would play with matches and do other things because somehow a, start, a fire started. And uh, they went running and made it home. And the whole field and that whole part of the community was burned down. No one was hurt and no houses were burned, but the trees and the brush and the bushes and that whole part of the town was burned so that by the time I'm visiting Grandma and Grandpa growing up, there's a beautiful golf course there. And I've confirmed with my father that he does deserve credit for the whole matter. <laughs> so that's tomfoolery. No harm intended. It can happen. And you've got inattention. My friend Ryan from graduate school would tell the story of how he burned his house down in high school. His dad was out um, and uh, he was making a funnel cake and fell asleep. And the pan, whatever, fire, and the whole house gone. He's standing on the curb as the house is in flames and dad pulls up and says, you burnt the house down, sugar? And I figured I'd better be prepared for what I would say to my son when he burns my house down. And at least I have a line, you burnt the house down, sugar, is what I will say to him. I'm prepared in advance. Inattention is one way, falling asleep. Um, getting a little closer to the matter here, when we, when we light our lives on fire or someone else's life on fire or burn down a relationship, um, if we don't blame their arson, we might speak in terms of spontaneous combustion. I don't know what happened. What happened? I don't know what happened. All I said was, well, we were just talking and then all of a sudden, <laughs> spontaneous combustion. Now, it doesn't mean you're always on the wrong side of a discussion that goes sour, but often we can be minimally in sensitivity, not listening well. Other things can be going on. James is talking about arson. Arson. We think, oh, well, things can go sideways. Yes, other ways. But here, look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. A whole world of unrighteousness. So let's ponder this matter of arson with our tongues. Evil words with 
our tongues. After all, this is what the church itself was dealing with. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? With words. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. All these words, murderous and quarrelsome words, are flowing from the passions and the heart, evil, evil desires. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. A world of unrighteousness. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So, yes, this isn't, this isn't a sermon on uh, uncareful words. This isn't a sermon on mistakes we make with our mouth. This is a sermon on the damage that we do because we say the things that we think and feel in the heart that we should not because we're sinners. We don't hold our tongue when we should and we don't mind our hearts and we are sinners from the heart and we hurt one another in, in sin. So, arsenic techniques. Well, there's the sin of gossip and the Proverbs will help us here. Proverbs 18.8 8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels they go down to the inner parts of the body. It's a sin to give ear to gossip. And what is gossip? But, but words with, with some nice adornment, some decorations that sound good, that are nevertheless cruel and very often false. But they don't have to be false to be gossip. They can take a true thing and spin it in a false way. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. Why a whisperer? Why is the, why is the person whispering? Well, because the person they're talking about is not in range. They don't want to be heard. They're saying things about a person, as we are tempted to say things about a person when they're not around. And we have to be careful with that. Oh, there's slander. Oh, that's the next one that we will address. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Rash words like sword thrusts. Slander is like gossip. It's just a more direct form of murder with the mouth. Well, then there is flattery. Kent Hughes Hughes helps us with this. If gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, then flattery is saying to their face what you would never say to their back. Let us not be flatterers. Let us not be gossips. Let us not be slanderers. So even just to pause here halfway through the list, have you been talking about someone to your friends or to a friend so that they will look bad? Maybe you've whispered some things when they're not around. Uh, maybe it was over a text. Maybe a conversation soft to the side. Maybe it was just eye contact and an eye roll. Maybe it was something that's true, but that wasn't your business to share. It's cruel nevertheless. Have you been slandering someone? 
I'm speaking more bold and direct words either to them or about them without them there to murder their reputation. So someone will think better of you than about, than about them. Fighting in sort of manipulative and crafty ways with the words that you use from your mouth. And the context here is church family, and of course it applies to our own families. Kids talking with kids, parents with kids about other family members, and if the seeds are sown young, this does not scale well as the years go on. And there are families who've burned down uh, what should have been a fruitful, beautiful garden of relationships to enjoy and feast on over many years, and there's not much left but scorched earth. This all goes back to the tongue. Let's keep going. Of course, there's deceit. There's deceit. Truthful lips endure forever, Proverbs tells us, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His, his delight. Using words to misrepresent reality. Simply put, deceit. Or crass words, we could define this way. Using words to make something beautiful ugly. Or to make something ugly sound beautiful. Most of what could be categorized under crass words is about, about that. It's making something that is beautiful out to be ugly with the way that you're speaking or something that is ugly out to be beautiful with the way that you're speaking. itself a form of deceit often enough. And of course there's boarse boasting. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And we could probably go on. Well, what do these words, these kinds of words, the kinds of quarrels and, and con- contentious words that this church was dealing with, uh, what's the result of these words? What do they do? Well, they stain the whole body, the language of defilement. But just to stay with the fire imagery here for a minute, isn't a burn hard to get out? There's... there's there's not really uh, anything on the list on your detergent that will help restore a burn. Stains the whole body. Sets the whole course of life on fire. That is a brutal image. And maybe, maybe you're on the other side of someone else's arson, and so that rings true. Or maybe you're on the other side of your own arson, and so that rings true. All sin, by the way, we're focusing on the sins of the tongue here, and they're real and big, uh, are like this. They're self-inflicted harm. Eventually it goes that way. And of course the Lord hears all of our words, but there is the simple practical effect that when we use our words to harm others, to deceive, to gossip, to slander, that in a matter of time, it does not go well for us. Of course, it sets a whole church on fire. He's writing to churches, after all, concerning their problems. And this is one reason why we began with a note on humility, and we should give our our teachers the grace that acknowledges that they also stumble in many ways, like us, James isn't afraid to say we all stumble in many ways, and yet he's a teacher picking up pen, a very brother of Jesus. 
So in, in a very biblical sense, go easy on your teachers and your pastors. They'll speak out of turn at times, and they'll speak a word they should take back, and, and they'll be insensitive, and they'll even sin with their tongues. Nevertheless, they're held to a higher standard. Nevertheless, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And it's because of the preciousness of this church and Jesus' flock and every local church that we have comments like that. And these churches had people within them who loved to hear themselves talk more than they loved to hear God's word or even God's word on their own lips. If they like to hear God's word, they like to hear God's word, God's word from their own mouth. They liked other people hearing God's word from them. So be careful. Just because one is able with the Bible and excited about it and quotes a lot of scripture does not mean they ought to be teaching within the context of the local church. And all we need is this from James, that not every one of you should become teachers. Presumably some were saying, put me in, coach, I want to be a teacher. And he says, no, or at best, you're not ready. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So show some grace to your teachers. We all stumble in many ways. Hold us to a standard and pray for us, for we're judged with greater strictness. And thank you very much for all of that. Well, that's what our tongues can do, stain the whole body, set our whole life on fire, and they can set a church on fire. Have you ever said something and thought, where did that come from? Because I'm hammering you a bit to grab another image. I'll take credit for that one. Um, James is hammering us, though, isn't he, with these images? Ever said something and thought, yes, pastor, I understand that I'm a sinner, and, but sometimes I just don't know where it, I don't know where it came from. It, must have, it came from inside me. After all, James will say, we're all lured and uh, dragged away by our own desires from within us. He doesn't let us get away with blaming God for our temptations. No, no, no. He, he works with us in trial. He, he, he develops our character in the context of trial. We can receive trials from his hand as his providence. But trials are a provocation, aren't they? We find ourselves saying things in life and and under the pressure of trials, and we might even say, where did that come from? Or you wonder from your spouse, where did that come from? Well, James has an answer for us here. Verse 6. The tongue is itself set on fire by hell. It's set on fire by hell. On first reading, I thought, and there is some debate of exactly what he's saying, but oh, he means it will be set on fire in the judgment. Well, maybe he's saying that, but I don't know. Um, it, it seems a little strange that he would speak in those terms about the tongue exactly, even in this highly metaphorical passage. He has talked about judgment only verses earlier. But it seems to me that he's not emphasizing at this point uh, what the tongue will get in the end, but rather how bad the tongue is. 
It sets the whole course of life on fire. And guess what? That seems to make sense because the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. Uh, this is how dangerous the tongue, the tongue is. Gehenna. It was that valley en route to Jerusalem that you would go by. That valley out back where the Canaanites would burn their children alive. Where Jerusalem would burn its trash. Gehenna was called. It was a real place just around the corner uh, with a real stench and real fire. And Jesus used that place some 50 times as a, an experiential shorthand of the fires of hell and what our sin deserves and final judgment. And James is picking up that same imagery and that place and that smell and that heat to say our tongues are set on fire by hell. Now, in another chapter, he's going to say, resist the devil. So we can just as well say that as God is concerned with the subject matter of our tongue, so is Satan, and he is smart to understand that if he can light your tongue on fire, then he can light your life on fire. He can get you to light your life on fire. He can get you to light this church on fire. So, friends, resist the devil. Uh, mind your tongue. Let us be a church that not only has members that don't give themselves to gossip and to slander and to flattery and to deceit, but self-polices on this matter. For the church members in these churches that James is writing to weren't supposed to say, oh, this person's gossiping to me right now. I expect they'll read James's letter at some point. Or maybe when James comes to town, I'll talk to him and he can talk to my friend. I'll say, hey James, uh, so-and-so was just talking bad about so-and-so to me. I didn't say anything, um, but you might want to go talk to them. No, this is for all of us, and there's to be some self-policing that goes on. And so when somebody is speaking to you uh, in terms of gossip, you know, carefully crafted words that are decorated or or in slanderous direct terms about another brother or sister or leader, the thing that you ought to do is not to give it a hearing. Uh, remember, that Proverbs speaks about how delicious they are and they go down. In a way, you ought to wonder how you invited it. What's going on in this relationship that they would speak so freely and aggressively and cruelly about this person? And put them on notice. Let them know that you believe that was sinful. Discuss it. Do it with whatever you, words you need to use. Um, I can't promise you it won't be awkward. Of course it will be awkward. And yet, this is the very kind of thing that we should be willing to do with one another. And if we don't, it's just at the cost of burning the whole church down. It really is. Um, some of you have been through a season in this church or another church where the tongues were loose and there were cruel comments in the halls and and, uh, and side conversations, and the, the carnage was everywhere. Uh, people leaving from misunderstanding and sus suspicion of motives and, and feeling hurt for one reason or another. 
Uh, they can't believe this person would say that about that person so they, and it not be true, so they must be right, but they can't say anything about it now because they never knew they were talked about in that way. Um, so let's be good to one another. Let's not speak ill of one another. Let's not speak cruelly to one another. And where we sin with our tongues, let's be quick to ask forgiveness, and let's be ready to be addressed on it. And let's be ready to make some awkward conversations for Christ's sake and for the church's good so we don't burn our blessed church down. I think we're in a good season here. And it may be that in your life it's not a good season. And it may be that from your tongue it's not a good season. I'm not saying at every corner of our church we're without sin here. I'm just saying that to the extent that the sun is up, if you experience the sun up at our church, um, you can thank God that that's because of many sinful Christians being transformed by the word of God to restrain their tongues, to look into the mirror of the word, and to do what it says. This here is a very, very important word for the health of our church. And I know you're receiving it as such. The tongue is set on fire by hell. Satan knows how important it is. If he can set our tongue on fire, then he knows that we will set our whole life on fire and maybe even our whole church. Okay, so the tongue is deceptive, deceptively dangerous. Now, when you see a danger sign, uh, you think, oh, good, I saw the danger sign. I will not go over there. I could get hurt. And were, were it not so, would it not be so easy? Uh, wouldn't we wish that it was so easy that I could just, and the scriptures could just say, uh, don't do this, it's bad. And then we all just obey like rational, we're not that way, are we? So the tongue is harder than that, and we all know that this is more difficult than that, and so we move on to our third image, and that is every kind of beast, verses 7 and 8. The tongue is deceitfully difficult. It is very hard to get control of the tongue. Um, if you're used to cutting people off because you had a thought pop into your head, I can relate with that, and you can if you've been around me. Um, and so you start talking, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Well, I'm sorry, sorry is a good thing to get good at saying, if that's your tendency. But it's almost like the tongue starts going, and you've got to reel it in. And, and over time, we can get better at exercising self-control. Or maybe it's just in your head you're talking over somebody, and you still need to listen better. The tongue is difficult, more difficult than, than it looks. So animals, I mean, some animals uh, completely ignore us and we ignore them. Some animals fear us. Some animals will obey us, generally, with a little bit of work. Some animals would eat us if we got close enough to them. But all animals can be tamed. And he's even willing to say, at least in the experience of these readers, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. No doubt he didn't know all about all the sea creatures, but we kind of do now, and we've even tamed killer whales. So the lion, how do you tame a lion? Well, we've got into animal psychology, and if you put a chair up, the four legs, and face it to a lion, it can't focus on where am I supposed to focus, and it gets confused, and you can control the lion. Don't try that at home. Well, they figure that out with different beasts. Um, with birds, you've got the carrier pigeons that can fly at some 
90 miles an hour and have been used up until the 80s even between two hospitals in France to carry sensitive information between two hospitals faster than you could carry it other ways. A, a carrier pigeon can get back to its home if trained carefully as far as 1,800 miles away and were used in Normandy to, tra- Normandy to transfer sensitive information in the context of, of war. Birds can be trained and reptiles, I'm not sure what he was thinking, actually. I hear that you can, uh, you know, like charming a snake. I researched that. I guess it's not a thing. Okay, so um, I guess you can wear a reptile out, and then you can kind of get it to do it as once. once. We'll have to ask James one day. Or sea, sea creatures, killer whales doing stunts for five- and six-year-olds at SeaWorld. It's a real thing. And we can't contain the tongue. We have great difficulty with the tongue. Deceptively difficult. Well, on to our fourth image. Maybe this will get a little bit better. We do have a turn in the way that images are used here now. The tongue is like a spring of water. Now, in this case, the tongue is honest, always honest about its source. And isn't that a good thing for us? It always perfectly reveals its source. Think of fresh water comes from a fresh water source and salt water from a salt water source. And then you think, oh, well, wait, the tongue, it praises God, but it also uh, curses those who are made in his image. So both must be in there. In brackets, yes, of course, sinners redeemed by God and saved by Jesus who have the Spirit will still sin. But in this context, he's saying that divided words betray a divided person. Words that that express praise to God, but but then cruelly insult other people. Oh, if you're living in a pattern of that and giving yourself to that and happy to keep doing that, uh, take a look at your heart. Where are you at? James would ask, do you have a divided heart? And not everyone should feel equally anxious about that. God is growing us all. We all stumble in many ways, as we're told in this very passage. Nevertheless, some are living in great sin and saying, I'm just fine. I can keep talking that way to my spouse. I can keep talking that way to my kids. I can keep talking that way about the pastor. I can keep talking that way about my brothers and sisters in church. And James would say that divided That divided fountain of yours out of your mouth betrays a divided heart and it should have you on alert. It is one thing about which the tongue cannot lie. And in this way, James is just quoting his older brother, Jesus. Matthew 7, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Or in Matthew 15, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Uh, Kale, um, hamburger helper. Uh, We care a lot about what goes into our mouth these days. not saying that's wrong. It's way out of proportion. But rather, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts 
and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Look at that. Slander is on that list with murder and adultery and sexual immorality. So we should maybe take greater inventory of our tongues. Now, it's all very convicting, and we need the shove on this. All of us do. But thankfully, the sermon's not over with a shove. For there is here for us unlimited grace for this no small problem. Did you notice what he says in verse 10? He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be. We really are family, and God has made it so. And James is writing to those sinning with their tongues. And he says this ought not to be, which means it doesn't have to be, which means he's writing so that it, so that it won't be. He intends his pen in writing these, these difficult words to do the work by means of the Spirit of moving these churches along in the grace of God. And grace is the right word. Don't forget chapter 4. He yearns jealously over uh, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, which you can do because you have the assurance that he will give you grace when you come to him humbly. Resist the devil and he'll free from you. What grace? Draw near to God. Those who sin with your tongues, confess that sin. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Our Lord Jesus, he never sinned with his tongue. He was perfectly innocent. And James knew it better than anyone. And he wasn't mad at his brother for being the better one. James knew, as we do, that we have a much greater elder brother than we do, who doesn't speak ill of us in the throne room of heaven. He speaks well of us, who loves us, and who doesn't leave us as we are. Now, God has grace for us, Grace for those who have sinned with their tongue like you and like me. Grace for churches that will repent when this sin has gone rampant. Grace from God. Great grace from God. The God who gives more grace. Grace that comes by means of something that is small and unassuming whose influence is outsized out of proportion to its size. That, that implanted word, that preached word that's here in an hour a week and then seemingly gone, but actually it's gone down if you've received it and it's growing in you. And it's growing in you to bring about something more incredible and more powerful than a rudder that would steer a ship, but that can bring healing to your life and the lives of others and give demonstration in real life to the fact that our God saves. It's no surprise that when we come to God in grace for the first time, and if you haven't, you can come to him for grace and forgiveness for the first time, and he has grace not only to forgive you, but to change you. And it's no surprise that when we become Christians, often we're very early talking about how we're talking different. And that's something to affirm. We're not saying things we used to say about people. We're saying things we didn't used to say about people. We're saying, I'm sorry. And that's a wonderful thing to say that is often an evidence of God's work 
in us. His grace in us. Grace through a small thing with outsized influence on your life. Miraculous influence on your life. For you have been brought forth from the word of truth, that implanted word, as a first fruits of his creatures. I mean, just think of that. That imagery of bounty and overflowing, multiplying life. It begins with your mouth. It's happening right here in the course of the preaching of the word. And one of the flowers of the Bible's preaching is the things that you don't say or the things that you do say when you, when you go home. You can apply this any, any Sunday of, of the year. No scorched earth from our tongues, but instead a garden of beautiful, beautiful flowers. Now back to the blob. The blob was from outer space. And there was no redeeming the blob. There was only, apparently, freezing the blob and dropping the blob in the Arctic. But thankfully, there is redemption for our tongues, or maybe better, our words, or maybe better, our very hearts. For the implanted word goes into our hearts to perform a work that is way out of proportion with its size. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you as the God who's never conflicted about what you are going to say. Uh, your thoughts are pure toward us as, our son, as your sons were. Um, there's no conflict deep down. You are not divided in your spirit. You are one true and living God. And you are one triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you are one toward us us. And you have spoken a very good word to us, a word by which we may be saved, a word concerning Christ, a word that is alive in us, and a word that is doing a work to change our words. Would you make us a church that reflects the very best of this passage? Protect us from lighting our lives and our church on fire this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.